First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be uh, plowing into chapter 2 as we uh, continue on studying through. Uh, entitled this, Love Does, Not Love Does. For those of you who are avid hunters, it is not love does, it is love does. And we'll talk about why, why we, we talk about that. And it, part of it stems from a story I read um, about a pa- pastor in uh, Chicago. He was, uh, when he was going to school uh, in seminary, he was, uh, his father worked at the seminary, so he would often be up at the school early, uh, just talking with his dad, and they began to notice that outside the window there was the, the Fox River that goes through Illinois there, uh, and they would always notice this older gentleman going out and constantly feeding the ducks, and this man would, would faithfully every day go out and feed the ducks, and the, the son asked the father, he said, do you know the story with this guy? He's always, always out there feeding these ducks and, and doing that. Why, why is he doing it? He says, actually, I do. And he, he said that this gentleman was uh, a Vietnam War vet. And when he was in Vietnam, there was a, a, a section where his, his group of men, they had all been basically shot and were all being left for dead. And the, the enemy was coming through and was just finishing off the individuals with, you know, uh, bayonets or swords or whatever they were using and they were finishing him off and he said that they were coming up to him and when they, when they got close they were along a riverside when they got close a whole bunch of ducks flew out of the reeds and all of the, all of the Viet Cong started turning and started shooting at the ducks and chasing after the ducks and this man was able to uh, crawl over to the, to the river and to, to escape and was able to make it back. And he said, it was just something that those ducks saved my life. They, they, if it wasn't for those ducks being there. And so he just had this love, this new love and affinity for ducks. And so he would just made it a practice that every day he was going to go and remember what had happened. And so he constantly fed the ducks. And it got me thinking about the fact that when, when a great miraculous and amazing event happens, it should precipitate a, a, an endearment back a love towards something. And as we look at our great salvation, we look at what Christ has done for us, there ought to be a reciprocation, a, a return of that love that is shown. And as we've looked through this passage, the, the second part of chapter one, we've seen that our love, our great salvation, it should motivate us. We talked about in verse 13, to gird up the loins of our mind, to live mindfully in light of our future hope. We learn that Peter says he commands that we are to be holy because like our Father is holy, we too are to be holy. And that's our new family, spiritual, our spiritual heritage that we have in, in Christ. And then we learn that we are to live fearfully in light of God's judgment. And he talked about in those, those verses 17 through 21, where we are, if we're going to call him Father and he is our Father, then we are to live with that respect and that fear of, of God in mind. And so Peter, Peter's, we stopped there, but Peter didn't stop. Peter kept going forward, and he continues to speak about the result of your regeneration of my regeneration. He goes on in verse 22 and following to, to just keep diving into the, the mine of, of the, the gems that are there for our, our salvation and what has come out of that. And so he goes on, and he's going to say, seeing that you have purified your souls— in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And so Peter, Peter looks and says, okay, because you have been doing this, 
he shifts focus a little bit. He says, because you've been saved, there's something that results from this salvation. And he shifts from talking individually to what's supposed to happen within a community. He noticed that, you notice that he talks about at the end of that verse, or in the middle there, in verse 22. Unto an unfeigned love of the brethren. That word love of the brethren is where we have Philadelphia. It is that brotherly love. And he says, because of our salvation, there is to be an unfeigned, real, genuine love for the brethren. Maybe you're familiar with John Donne. Uh, he was an English poet. He was a cleric in the Anglican church. I'm not espousing the Anglican church, obviously. But he, it's a familiar phrase that he talks about, that no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent. And he goes on to talk about the idea that when we as a, a community, we are a body that are together. He talks about in the, in the realm of mankind, he talks about when a man, someone dies, it affects him because there's someone, there's someone who's passed away and we're, we're humans. But the idea of no man is an island unto himself, I think we need to, to remember that even in our body of believers, how act, it's not me alone by myself. It impacts you. How you impact or act, how you live out your Christian faith impacts others. Because a body that, are, that is functioning and focused together. And so Peter, Peter says that. He says the believers here are focused in what that love that we have, that because of our salvation, is to be toward one another. In fact, the believer enters into salvation by obeying the truth of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Seeing you have purified your souls. He's saying that this is something that has already happened, so it's not them getting saved. It's a state that they're already in. So he's like, you are already a believer. You've purified your souls by obeying the truth of the gospel. You are, you are now a believer, and because of that, there is now this unfeigned love of the brethren. It is the result of your conversion. Notice how he says, he says in the passage, he says that uh, through the spirit of your unfeigned love, see then that you love one another with a pure heart. Your family heritage has changed. We talked about that last time, how that we were, verse 13, we have, we have this new, um, we've been brought into this relationship with, uh, with Jesus Christ. Verse 14, we are obedient children. We have a new heritage that is, that is present down in verse, uh, verse 18, I believe, yeah, 18, where we're not going after the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but now we have this new perspective. We have these new teachings that we are to be following. So the former lust, the vain conversation from our fathers beforehand, from the old man that is, that is within us, that is now gone because, or to, to be put away in our lives. So there's this genuine love that then comes out for the fellow members of our Christian community. We are to have a genuine Love, not a, not a fake one, not a, okay, well, you know, I sort of love them, but I really don't love them. It is supposed to be a genuine love for one another. That I am to have a love for you, you for the people around you, you for me. And yeah, yeah, I understand we're not all, you know, going to be best bosom buddies. We're not all going to, uh, you know, be the, the perfect person that everybody likes to hang around. And yet at the same time, we may not, always hang together, but I ought to be able to show love, respect, 
admiration and be there for you if something was necessary. And that's so Peter's driving at this idea of we need to be showing love toward one another. So he, he fills it in. He, he keeps going in this idea. And what is he saying? Our great salvation should motivate us to deeply love our fellow believers. That ought to be, in fact, that's the command in this passage. The command in this verse is to, you notice how it says that you, uh, through the unfeigned love of your brethren, and then he says, see that you love. That's the command. He's like, you and I have a responsibility to be right with God is to love the brethren, to have that love for each other. And I'm afraid all too often I come to, come to church like Oscar. Oscar the Grouch, just grumpy. All right, I want to see, you know, I, I have to be excited. I have to love the brethren and, and to work through that. So he says, see that you love. It is a conversion. Our conversion demands that we love one another, that we demonstrate that to each other. It is, not, it is not optional. To be right with God, it is, I can't disobey his commands. And so if he is saying, I have to have love for the brethren, I must demonstrate that because one was expected to love these people simply because they were fellow Christians. That's, that's, that's all he gives us. He doesn't say because they're cool or because they're nice or because you like them. He says the reason you love them is because they are fellow believers that there is a bond, that we are part of a family, a community together. We come like grumpy cats sometimes where we're just, you know, so, so bummed. But look at what he says. He says to do it with a pure heart fervently. That word fervently, it has the idea of the pure heart is a sincere or a genuine heart without ulterior motives. I don't show you love because I'm hoping I'm going to get something back. That's, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about here. The fervently means to exert yourself with all of your energy. Do I demonstrate love to Christians that way? Do I put my energy into it or am I really passive? Do I stand back and go, I'll let somebody else, you know, meet those needs? Oh, I see that need, but I don't have time. I'm not going to put the effort in. But Paul or Peter says, I am to love the brethren, with fervency, with my energy, to take the time, to take the effort, to say, I need to demonstrate and I need to show it. It is something that if you're doing with energy, it's not simply words and mental acknowledgement. There is effort that involved because love does. Love does, just doesn't think. Love just doesn't hope. Love fervently does. I can, I can just simply say to my wife, well, I love you, and yeah, you know I love you, but if I never demonstrate that, if I never show that, she doesn't feel that. Well, the same concept proves into the body of believers. Showing love, fervently serving one another, fervently doing things in order to make the body, our community, work. So I might, I might have to serve. You know, you know, some of you may faithfully serve to, to work in the nursery. You, you don't like it, but you know what? That's the way I can show love to some of the other people. You, you get involved. I can, I can look and say, I'm going to faithfully do this with my energy. Our motive to love is not to get what we want out of uh, or gain something out of a deal, but it's to extend ourselves for the sake of that person. 
to look and to say, I need to show love, not so they're going to give back, not so they're going to give me the praise, not so I get adulations, but I am going to do this because it is benefiting my body of believers. I am doing this because it is, it is bolstering Christians who need encouragement. I'm going to say, oh, I, it's really important. I should probably write somebody a letter this week. Love does. Write the letter. Oh, I, I know it's probably really good that I, I take my time to talk and just be a friend with somebody this week and show them that I care for them. Then, then do that. It's fervency. It's with that energy. It's not just sitting back and having a, a theological premise that I do nothing upon. Peter says, do it fervently. Because people of vertical faith who have a good relationship with God will learn how to live with the believers horizontally. We must learn to figure out, okay, this is what God says, then this is what I do. I, I learn to, to interact. Because we can demonstrate this radical love. And it is a radical love because it's not a natural love. It is not in our nature to want to be unselfish. It is not in our nature to simply want to take our time away to go help somebody else. That's not natural. And so we look and we say, we can do this. Why? Because we've entered into this new relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. Or Pe- Why? He's saying Paul. Peter is saying, he's saying, because of this, seeing that you've already purified yourself, now you enter into this unfeigned love, so you do this love with fervency, with energy. You serve, you love, you show it, you demonstrate it to the body of believers. He's not even talking at this point about the, the unsaved or the unbelievers. He is, he's talking to the brethren that we have a responsibility to one another to demonstrate love. What does that look like? It's going to look different for different people. But look and say, how can I show that? How can I demonstrate compassion and kindness and care and mercy and grace? How can I show that to another believer who's here? How can I help them, one who's struggling or one who is hurting, one who has needs to be met, one who has issues and they're, they're really needing some help? How can I step out and fervently with my energy meet that because that's what Paul or Peter calls us to do. Okay, and then he goes on in verse 23. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed. He's going to now lay the foundation. He's going to say, I know you can do this. I know you can demonstrate this uncanny love. I know you can do it because of the foundation that it is built upon. Look what he says. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So he says, the foundation of your ability to love is your regeneration. He says, you've not been born of a corruptible seed, of the natural process of things. He's saying it's not, it's not your human birth, but it's of the incorruptible. It's a supernatural work. It's not out of the natural order, but because of the supernatural spiritual birth that we have, our new father, who is love, God is love, and I am to be like my father, this new father that I have, this new family heritage that I'm involved in, says I must demonstrate love. I must be doing it. And we can do that because Peter says, you have been born of this new spiritual seed, of this incorruptible seed. Not of, not of the corruptible fleshly type, but it is a supernatural 
spiritual birth that enables you and I to be able to show this radical love that the world doesn't want to show. And as we demonstrate that to believers, we have a light. We show people outside the church then. But Peter focuses on here for us as believers. He says that it happens by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And Peter's going to do his Peter thing, where all of a sudden he's going to go from here to here to here to here, and he's going he's to start bouncing a little bit, but he's got a good logical train of thought that's happening. He says the word of God is what brings us life. It has the power to bring life and initiate change. And as we look at the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has no end point. When, when the gospel begins in our life and when we get saved, it does not cease. It lives and it abides forever. There is no end. When I, when I was regenerated, when I was rebirthed, that continues on. And so the, the word of God, which lives and abides forever, is there. And what he's going to do is he's going to back up his point with Scripture. And he's going to use a passage from Isaiah chapter 40, and he's going to quote it to prove that the word of God lives and abides forever. And so he uses, he uses Isaiah 40. Let me ask you a question, though, before we get to that. What do you know about your ancestors? Have you ever thought about it? How, many, how, many, how much do you really know? Most of us, we can probably talk about our parents pretty familiar, familiar, familiarly. Yes. Wow, that's a really tricky one. We can do that. We can a little less about our grandparents. You start getting to your great-grandparents. You may have some knowledge. You get to four generations, five generations back. You know, we have little snippets if we have maybe some famous person or whatever. And that's our, that's our family. That, and those are the people we're supposed to know really well, very intimately. But you, you start going further and further back. And it really challenged me to think, I was, I was reading, uh, uh, what's his name? Just lost his name, writes music. Uh, old guy, Wesley, John Wesley. He was talking about this passage and he said it really challenged him to think that in about three Three or four generations, nobody knows who I am. Nobody, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, a legacy. I'm something, because we as humans, we're mortal. We, we have this short lifespan, and, it's, and then it's gone. And yet we, we throw so much into this world, and I want to live for all of this, when I need to be looking and saying living for God. And we, we know this little bit about our ancestors. And we have this transitory life. And Peter's going to look and say, well, that's the way it is for everybody. All flesh. All flesh is like grass. He says, it's going to be here. It'll flourish for a little bit. And then what happens? It dies off. It's the natural process of things. And so he uses that contrast to then say, okay, that's what happens. But the word of our God it doesn't, it doesn't cease. It doesn't stop. It goes on. It continues. It goes on and on. And he uses this pa- passage here uh, from Isaiah, verse 24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man, everything that man has achieved, is the idea there, as the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower, it fades away, falls away. But the word of our Lord endures forever. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And I, and I thought about this, and he talks about, okay, man and all of his accomplishments in this verse, they're Im- impermanent. They're fleeting. They're going to go away. But the word of God, it is permanent. It endures. And Peter's looking and saying, all right, the word of God, God's word, it is permanent. 
Why would Peter use this scripture? Look at all these different thoughts. Why use Isaiah 40? Do you remember Isaiah 40's context? It's a Babylonian exile. Peter's already talking to individuals who are in exile. Not only are they in exile, do you remember he starts the passage and he says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And he's going to comfort. And what does he comfort with? The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The word of the Lord endures. He goes through this passage and Isaiah is saying, it is, it is comfort. It is assurance to these exiled believers that God is working and that God's word is sure. And God encouraged his people. He said, there's going to be deliverance from this exile in Babylon. And so they, they have this exile. We know that it goes through. And God's word is found valid. And so now Peter quotes from that same chapter. And he looks and says, God's word endures. God's word is secure. It is sure. Though their persecutors may seem in control, whether back in Babylon or now in Peter's day, it may seem like they're in control, they're flourishing, things are going well for them and not so good for the believer. Peter says they're transitory. It's short-lived because their glory, their fame, their power, their accolades, all that they have in the scope of eternity, it's going to fade away. It will not be. And so you can find hope in the word of God's, in God's words, enduring power. And so Peter looks and says, yes, it's true. All flesh is grass. Our life is transitory. But the word that we hope in, the word that we are trusting in, doesn't fade away. It stays secure. It continues on. And the gospel that they are faithfully following, which has caused hardship, it's worth it. And we know he's talking directly, specifically here about the gospel. Not just the, generally we can talk about the Bible as a whole. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to uh, pass away. It's not going to endure. That was not Peter's intended initial thought. Look at what he says in the next, next portion of the verse. He says, uh, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So he's looking and saying, talking about the gospel is enduring. And then he's looking and saying that the word of God as a whole endures. So he's saying this gospel that you're living for, this gospel exiles that you all of a sudden find yourself persecuted because you are in this new family and you have this new identity and you have this newness of life and you're facing these turmoils and hardships. He says, it's worth living for because God's word cannot be superseded. God's word is above all others. It is sure. It is a promise that we can hold to. We can trust in God's word, and therefore we need to be in God's word and studying God's word so that we understand what God's mind is, what he does. Now, our response to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us, and that must impact our life. We've talked about it a number of times, that it's not just enough to have theology but we have to be doing our theology. We, it has to impact us. I used to teach the teens to, to ask the question, so what? Okay, the Bible's inspired, so what? Well, if the Bible's inspired, that means it's God's word, and that means I need to be obeying the, the word of God because it is God's word. And so as we look at theology, we're asking ourselves, how does that impact our life? Peter continues his train of thought into the next chapter. We break it at chapter two, but it, it goes together. The first three verses of chapter two continue this train of thought and give us some practical application. I really like it when the, uh, the authors of scripture give us the application. 
because it makes it a whole lot easier for me. Because this is what Peter's going to look and say, let me tell you how this applies. Let me tell you how the importance of the word of God and you demonstrating love to believers. Let me show you how it applies to our lives. He looks in verse one of chapter two, and I'm excited because I get to turn the page finally, all right? We made it to chapter two. Okay, here we go. Wherefore, laying aside, he looks and he says, all right, because of the word of the gospel, because of what we've just talked about that was preached unto you, lay aside or get rid of all that hinders on a continual basis. And he's, we, can, we can get really general and we can talk about all the different things, but Peter says, let, let me give you a couple. Let me talk to you about what you need to work and make sure you lay aside. How clean is your house? Some of us work really hard to keep the house clean. And yet I remember these, these TV shows where people will come in and these, these, I remember these two old British ladies sometimes. I don't even remember the show. I just remember they would come in to people's houses who were sort of clean or dirty, and they'd be like, do you realize how disgusting this is? And they're like wiping around, you know, the, the, the stove, and then they'd like send the kits away to get tested for all the germs and bacteria that are around people's stoves. And, and for some of you, that drives you to, you're going to go home today, and you're going to scrub and clean a little bit more because you don't want that in your house. And we work really hard to keep our physical houses clean but what about our spiritual houses? How clean is our house? Peter is going to tell the church here what to get rid of. And it's not the gross vices of paganism. I, I believe part of that is because they've already done that. They have, they've gotten rid of the vain traditions, the vain conversations. They've already talked. He's going he's gonna to poke. He's going to get in on a level that we are not going to like because he's going he's gonna to talk about some direct things that often we're okay with tolerating as believers. That we'll sort of, well, that's just the way we are as humans. You really can't. No. Peter says these need to be gotten rid of. We need to chuck them out of our life. We need to, the, the, the picture is taking off the dirty clothes and getting rid of them. That's what we need to do. And the, they do it because these, these vices, these sins that are going to be brought here, they destroy community. They destroy the body. And if we allow them to permeate our lives, no one is an island unto themselves. If I allow it to permeate my life, then what does it do to you? It hurts you. It, it hinders you in your spiritual growth. The same true, vice versa. We are to love the brethren. So what does he do? Let's, let's look at the vice squad for a minute. Okay, I love Dudley Do-Right. I love Snively Whiplash. But he was always known to, he's trying to hurt people, hurt, hurt Penelope. You know, he's trying, he's, he was always about that malice, that inner, it's the inner problem of the heart. It is, if you look at this, many of the sins that are going to flow right after this, they stem out of malice. It really, what it is, it's this ill will toward uh, another. And it's often fleshed out. Look how it's fleshed out often through bitterness, through grumbling, through holding grudges. It is that, that feeling toward another individual that I'm just so irritated and frustrated with them that I, I honestly hope something bad sort of happens to them. They deserve it. They're just being a jerk, and I don't like them. I'm frustrated. Now, again, we know in our very good Christian circles we would never, ever feel that way toward one another. But there are times that we have to battle the struggle of malice and how it fleshes out being bitter toward one another, grumbling, the holding of the grudges toward each other. Look what he says next. He talks about guile. 
He talks about being, uh, being tricky, being uh, deceitful with our words. It's the idea of being selfish and deliberate with our untruths, saying we'll do something but really not meaning it. We're going to present but not follow through. We're going to put spin on stuff so that we can make ourselves look good one way, but really we intended to do this. And we'll call it, well, it's just spin. It's just, it's okay. But Peter looks and says this idea of guile, to be deceitful, to be deliberately untruthful with our words with one another, to put that spin on it. He looks and says that destroys, that hurts the body. He says not just guile, but he uses that word of hypocrisies. We know the the history of that word, where it's the play actor, the one who wears the mask. He's not really there, the the one behind the mask. He's not really that person, but that's what he portrays or pretends. We need to to literally pull the mask off. That's not any political statement or anything like that. We just need to look and say the hypocrisy the insincerity that we have, the inconsistencies in our life, that we do this here, and then we go out in our community and we, we live however we want, we say whatever we want, and that hurts the body because they're like, wait, aren't you a believer of Faith Baptist Church? Don't you go there? And yet you're living this way and acting this way and you have this attitude. It hurts the body. It hurts each other. We have to be consistent. We have to strive. Those are things we're constantly working at. And that's when he says, wherefore lay aside, he's saying this is something that we have to do on a daily basis. To work and say, Lord, help me today to not be a hypocrite. Lord, help me today to not show malice and to want ill will toward another. To be honest and truthful with my words. He goes on and he says the next one. He talks about envies. He says, put away all these envies. I liked the term I found reading one of the books. They called it resentful discontentment. That your envy toward another often begins with what maybe somebody possesses or they have or maybe an ability or a skill that they have. And then you feel this displeasure, this frustration that then is produced because you witness or you hear of the advantage or the prosperity of another one. Whereas believers, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. If somebody gets a a job that's better than ours, let's rejoice with them. Wonderful. God has blessed you with that, and that's great. Rather than wallowing and finding ourselves battling with envy because, well, they get better, they get more time, paid time off than I do. They get more of this, they get more of that. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves resenting and being frustrated. And then, how does that flesh itself out? I don't want to talk to that person. And it hinders my fellowship with them because I find myself walking into church and being like, I'm going to stay over here because I'm so frustrated with them. They got all the things. Everything just works out for them. And I, I find myself battling with envy and, and that discontentment. I like this cartoon that, that I found. It said, this older lady saying, if only I had her looks. And she's like, if only I had her lifestyle. And the guy's like, oh, if I, only I had this older man's success. And the older man's looking and saying, if only I had this, this young guy's youth. We can find areas in our life to be discontent. And yet Peter says, put that away. Lay it aside. Put that envy, that resentful discontentment, set it aside. Then he goes on, he says the last one. He says, and all evil speaking. This one, this one, I didn't like this week. Flat out. God and I, God and I had some God and I time. 
He won, but <laughs> it was just, it's this, this idea, it's the idea of slander. The running down of somebody verbally. To look and to say, well, you know, I have this prayer request, or I want to voice a concern that I have. Let's, let's be honest for a moment. How's this gone over the last year? In regard to the brethren, to us, that's, that's what Peter's talking about. Have you found yourself, like I have at times, being frustrated, maybe with a decision that was made or a choice that was made, in regard to everything that's happened in the last year and a half? And I say, well, it's, it's just my opinion. I'm just voicing my opinion. Okay, that's, that's fine. But yet, does it turn into slander where I tear down another believer or a decision that they may have made that I didn't like? That they choose to take a different position than I do. I'm wearing a mask or not. I'm getting a vaccine or not. And so I'm going to, I, I have no biblical right to go and go, well, you're just a mindless sheep. You have no clue. That's not respectful. There is no love there. I may not agree with your opinion. I may agree with your opinion. But I have a biblical responsibility not to slander you, not to tear you down with my verbal speech. I have a biblical responsibility to demonstrate love. And if we think that that will not impact us as a body of believers, we're deceiving ourselves. Because Peter's flat out telling us that. He's saying that we are to demonstrate love to one another. Practically, how do we do that? By getting rid of the malice, by getting rid of the envy, by getting rid of the slander. He says that's going to build us up and that's going to demonstrate love to the brethren. Because if, if, the, world, if the world continues to spiral out of control, who do we have? Us. Our fellow believers. And if all we're going to do is find ourselves tearing each other down, ripping each other apart, not demonstrating love and compassion and that, that, that responsibility and respect to one another, then Satan gets a stronghold. And that's not what we want. Not what we want in our body. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was God and I. <laughs> all right, God, I need to work at this. I need to work at being respectful with my speech to look and say, I need to do that. Because when our community is under pressure, there is a tendency to begin bickering. And that makes us much more vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We don't, we need, we don't need to open ourselves up. Satan wants to make us struggle and battle as it is. Let's not give in, but let's follow Peter's pattern to say, put this off. And now Peter, Peter really, he's going to throw us for a loop. But I want you to think about, why do you think Peter made these direct applications and is called to remove them from our life, get rid of this vice squad, all these, these evil tendencies? I think partially because these are things that destroy love. And that's what the focus of his previous section was on. He said, you need to, I need to show fervent love for the brethren. And in order for me to do that, I need to, to not do these things that destroy love. The focus is on how our action live and, and lives impact our community relationships. So how are these, these vices that he puts here, how, how are they impacting or not impacting? Well, we know they're impacting. 
Am I doing, am I doing the right things? These sins, uh, one of the commentators, Thomas Schreiner, uh, he, he wrote this. He said, these are the sins that will tear the social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep us together. And so we, we, out of love for one another, out of my love for you, I need to be working on taking these things out of my life. And I will be honest, some of those things are really easy for me. My mouth runneth over all the time. And I have to be very cautious. I need to guard it. I need the Holy Spirit's help to pull that back and to rein that in. And we need to look and say, these things impact our body. Now, usually after a vice list in the New Testament, you get the virtue list. You know, put off the works of the flesh, and here's the, here's the works of the Spirit. Peter doesn't do that. He goes back to this theme of our birth, of our new family. Look at, look at what he says. He goes, so as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense because if I'm going to have to battle with these things that are not natural to me, I'm going to need to understand the supernatural word of God. I'm going to need to understand what he's saying. So he highlights our dependence upon God. As babes, we are dependent upon God. Now what he is not saying here, he is not, this is not a passage on newborn believers. Okay, he's not saying they were all, they were all new, new believers. He's saying these individuals, like a, like a baby is dependent upon the milk. He's saying we as believers, he's not saying new believers, he's not saying uh, immature believers, he's saying we as believers must be dependent upon God and his word for our lives. And so he's looking and saying we must be trusting in God's word. We need to live to make yourself and thus your spiritual family stronger. For the command in this verse is to crave. It is to crave or to desire the sincere milk of the word. Birth is not the end of the process. Okay, it is the end of a certain process, but it is not the end of the process. Growth is necessary for humans, both physically and spiritually. And so Peter is saying, we need to be growing. We need to be moving forward. We are encouraged to continue in the teachings of Christ, to trust and learn his word, not simply to leave them behind because we've been converted. Okay, I'm saved. I've been a believer for a whole bunch of years. I really, I know all the stuff in the Bible and I really don't need a whole lot in it anymore. I, I, I can just sort of lay it aside. No, Peter's looking and saying, as newborn babies desire, they crave, they want that milk, that ought to be our passion. And when getting into the word is our passion, we start to see these things that as we look at the mirror of God's word, we start to say, wait, ooh, I don't, uh, okay, I gotta work on my malice or my guile or my hypocrisy. And I lay that aside and I put it aside because it then benefits the body of believers and it, it, it strengthens my life and then it strengthens you. And it shows you and demonstrates love and allows me to demonstrate that love. The sincere milk is the pure and unadulterated word. It's actually the opposite word of that word deceit where he says, put away, put away your deceit, your guile. This is the opposite word. It's, 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 it is its antonym. There, there we go. He says, it is true. Because God is not seeking to deceive us with his word and his ways. So as we read God's word and we understand God's word, we can have full confidence that this is what I need to be doing. This is how I need, even if it's hard, it's what I need to be doing. It's how I need to be living. Even if it means putting on some things that are really natural to me, it's what I need to be doing. 
Even if it's really hard showing love toward other believers, it's what I need to be doing. Because God, is, his word is not deceitful. He's not pulling the wool over on us. He's saying, this is real. It is pure. It is holy. And we need to be trusting and going with it. And look what he says. The purpose of the word of God, the purpose of desiring the word of God is that you may grow thereby. That is the intended purpose, that we should be actively seeking out the nourishment that is good for our growth. That we are not just passively sitting by, but we become active participants in getting into the word. Actively listening to other messages maybe, or other uh, books, reading some other stuff, but getting in more than that into the word of God because that is what brings growth. And Peter says in our lives, we need to be doing this. Milk is the substance for life. And it is the substance for life, which we all need. Every age group here, we need that. We need the milk of the word. We need to be faithfully in it. And it's usually pretty well argued that when you're battling with all of these other things, it's probably because your time in the word of God is, is meager. As we saturate our life with God and the Holy Spirit, we trust in him and we allow him to control us and we're into the word of God and it penetrates our life and it saturates us and it makes us to make these wise decisions biblically and godly, these other things, though we still battle with them, they get pushed to the side. We can lay them aside and actively serve. Now, Peter, again, he's gonna, he's gonna validate his point with scripture. He's going to say, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is good. Or the idea is, since you have tasted, he quotes from Psalm 30, 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. He quotes and he says, since, it's literally the idea of since you have tasted that the Lord is good. The desire to grow spiritually in our lives, it springs from tasting the experience of God's graciousness, his kindness of the gospel. And he says, because we've tasted that, because we have experienced the regeneration, the power of the gospel in our lives, because it has saturated us and we know the goodness of God and we've seen it working in our lives, we go for it more. We get into it more, knowing that it's going to help us grow. And that is why we, we push for it. We love it because it impacts our family. Love rejoices. I read this. It said, love rejoices over another. It's thankful for the other. It reverently respects and demonstrates loyalty to the other. You could say that our earnest love resembles a family. And they were talking and, and bringing it together, this passage together to say, when we look at this passage, the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, as Peter looks and says, our brethren, our community of believers, our family, we are to be demonstrating this love for one another, that there is a strong family tie in this passage. We, we highlight it a little bit. There's obedient children in verse 14. You have the father in verse 17. You have it again, the, the old fathers in verse 18. You have the brethren in verse 22, the, that you are born again, the, the birthing theme that, that is there into this new family. We are newborn babes. There's, there's all this family dynamic that's being talked about. And so as we as a family, as a community, as a body of believers together are interacting and are strengthening each other, we have to look and say, do we rejoice for one another? Are we thankful for each other? Do we show that? Do we acknowledge it or do we demonstrate it? Peter wants us to grow up into Christ 
as members of his family. We are members of the family of God. He is longing for our church and his church and any church to be mature, adult-like, and strong. And we do that by building each other up, by being in the word of God, by removing the sinfulness out of our lives and trusting in God's goodness and demonstrating that love to one another. And we will build each other up and we will make each other stronger. There's a, there's a writer, some of you have read him, his name's Bob Goff, uh, and he writes a book called Love Does. And he's got a couple other ones. I don't agree with everything he is, some of his, his conclusions on some things, but at the same time, his challenge is about being active in how we love. Very, very challenging. He says, love just doesn't think about it. Love doesn't just plan it. Love does it. And if I love the brethren, I need to demonstrate that. And that also means that I need to work on my life, my holy living, my putting aside of some of these things. We should work diligently, hard, fervently at loving our spiritual family while we live in our lives to strengthen and purify it. We want to be strong as a body of believers. And that's going to require work. Love is not just, okay, yeah, I need to love the people here. I need to do something about that. And if I want to see this church purified and strengthened, the easiest way for us to do that is to take some individual responsibility. If I strengthen myself through the power of God and through the word, and I saturate myself with the word of God, and I work it purging out of my life and living holy and living the way that I am supposed to live, I will strengthen you. We need to just individually buckle down and look to say, I need to grow spiritually. And as we do that, we build each other up. We demonstrate that. Sorry. And so as you think about it, as you think about how life goes together, how you're acting, how are you showing love toward the brethren? How are you actively doing that? What can you work on this week to say, I know of some needs. I know of a way to be an encouragement. I know of some... some uh, struggles and some hurts that I can fill a gap in? How do you look and say, what do I need to personally do to make sure that I am being the best body member I can be for my brethren? What do I need to put away? What do I need to trust in? What do I need to fill my mind with this week? And to look and say, Lord, help me and help my friends help my fellow believers, my brethren in Christ to do the same, that we would love and that we would live the way that God intended for us to do. So Father, I pray that you would help me to do my part, to trust in you, to live for you, to love you. And God, I pray that you would help me to show love to this body. Lord, help me to find ways to tangibly, practically do love, to show it. And Lord, help me to live for you and help others here as well to do the exact same thing. God, we thank you for the power, the pointedness of your word. And Lord, help us to live it out, not to dismiss it because it is your word. It is your way for us to live in this world. Thank you for it. Thank you for the clearness, the conciseness, and yet the power of it. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great evening. Have a blessed week.